0: Section 17 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. CHAPTER SEVENTEEN, THEFT, CONTINUED POCKET-PICKING To treat fully of pocket-picking would only consist of collecting together a considerable number of anecdotes, given by all biographers of thieves, and extracts from every imaginable newspaper. This would certainly be very good reading, but not particularly instructive to the investigating officer. Everyone knows the majority of the tricks of these scamps, but to be acquainted with every device of this class of thief is a prevention impossible to realize. For of all the methods employed, we know only those which chance, clumsiness, or the confusion of a thief has unveiled to us. Most of these clever thefts remain the secret of the operators themselves, and many more will be invented and carried out in the future. Once a method is known and it has been given publicity, the experienced thief employs it no longer but abandons it to the tyros of his art and thinks out a new one and there is no doubt that a new one he will find for the ranks of pickpockets include the most ingenious of men and the most intelligent of criminals he who possesses neither manual dexterity agility presence of mind keenness of glance nor knowledge of men will never make a pickpocket for all these qualities are necessary in the profession But if he does possess them, the most astounding acts may be expected from him. The pickpocket, who is a past master of his art, makes it a point of honor to show off his skill to his colleagues, the public and the authorities, and always to give them something new, which we know nothing of today and very likely will know nothing of in the future. When we peruse the exploits of celebrated pickpockets of all ages and all countries, such as Louis-Dominique Cartouche, Sawney Douglas, John Hall, Reb Chassel, Tom Taylor, Joseph Weissman, Simon Flesher, Jonathan Simpson, and also women thieves, perhaps even more skillful, such as Gasner's Liesel, Mary Hawkins, Anna Hollandania, Deborah Churchill, Anna de Bush, Clara Mayenbaum, and a host of others. We become convinced that they employ a new trick only a limited number of times and abandon it immediately on its becoming known no doubt the general procedure remains always the same the thief wears a distinguished and inoffensive appearance observes his victim attentively and tries to find out which pocket contains his money generally by looking through a shop window where his prey is changing a bank-note then he must seize the right moment post a confederate in a favourable place assure himself of having free access to the pocket and at last draw out the coveted article with the hand which he always transforms into a kind of scissors scissors making according to ave Lalamont, is either to stretch out the whole hand and form the scissors by keeping the first and second finger together on one side and the third and fourth on the other side as in figure 148a or by stretching out the first and second fingers only and doubling the thumb and the third and fourth back into the palm of the hand Figure 148b. The hand is introduced into the pocket, the back of the hand being turned towards the victim and always kept away from his body as much as possible in order to avoid any contact therewith. When the ends of the finger forming the blades of the scissors have reached the purse, they are opened so as to bring it between them. The difficult point is to seize the object with the scissors between the first phalanges, for the further the hand is thrust in, the more dangerous the operation becomes owing to the progressive enlargement of the hand. Yet the article must not be withdrawn too soon, for the purse may escape from the ends of the fingers, the operation come to grief, and the theft be discovered. It is the last stage that requires the most practice, but it enables the thief to seize a heavy purse with his fingertips as firmly as we can hold a piece of paper. It is for this reason that an old pickpocket advises a youngster to go in for pocket-picking, only if he has long and tapering hands and principally if the first and middle fingers are nearly of the same length for then the extremities of these two fingers having a delicate touch and being protected by the nails may be brought into contact with one another without it being necessary to bend the middle finger at least this is what a budapest pickpocket once told the author and he also asserted that an individual who did not possess these qualities could never become a first-class pickpocket His hands must be like those of an alcociere or a pianist. He must always keep them in good condition, preserve them from rough work, and constantly rub them with fat, glycerin, vaseline, lanoline, or other grease. It is therefore recommended that the hands of an accused pickpocket be inspected, especially when the theft has been carried out with unusual skill. It will nearly always be noticed that these gentry, like cards sharpers, see chapter 18, have extraordinarily fine, straight, and delicate hands and very long fingers. The other qualities of a pickpocket mentioned above should also be attended to. He is nearly always distinguishable by his free demeanor, nimbleness, and keenness of glance, unless indeed he pretends to look foolish and awkward. Moreover, on the streets, a pickpocket is noticeable from frequently carrying a plaid to hide his arm and hand at work. For subsequent investigations, the investigating officer will do well to deal with everything that accompanies a case of pocket picking, such as in cut pockets, look for little knives in a signet ring or bracelet, cut watch chains, small but strong pincers hidden in a pocket knife, false hands placed on the knee, which the thief manipulates with his real hand, or artificial mosquito stings which incite the victim to hunt the mosquito or other insect while the thief carries out his work. An individual is also worthy of suspicion if he acts awkwardly in taking a light from another person, or if he bumps against him, or brushes him down, or draws his attention to something or other, or has recourse to similar artifices. But all this will not go for much if the investigating officer imagines that this kind of maneuver necessarily accompanies every case of pocket-picking. The best thing for him to do is first to consider everything, however unbelievable, as possible, to have the facts related in every detail and without tiring, including all that has preceded and followed the occurrence, and then try to discover the connection of each point of the story, however insignificant it may be, with the theft itself, and verify it from that point of view. And finally, study minutely the person suspected, and try to discover of what he is capable. Here again, the relation between the accused and the incriminating facts is of great importance as to the question of confederates what we have already said must be remembered that as a general rule all thieves from the bizarre pickpocket to the expert railway thief work with an auxiliary only the retired thief who is a past master of his art works alone and does not share his profits with another the investigating officer will find it most useful to get a conjurer to show him the principal tricks of his art and in particular the manner of changing and forcing cards What the prestidigitator knows, so also does the pickpocket, and if we remember the marvelous things the former can do, we will the better understand what it is within the compass of the latter. The conjurer will be able to teach it the most important points of his art, namely to know how to seize the psychological moment. He draws the attention of the public to some more or less isolated object, such as a flying bird, a gunshot, a hat confided to another, and during this time he does what he wants to do, and the pickpocket acts in exactly the same manner. Sneak Thefts The greatest number of articles are probably stolen by sneak thefts. Good preparation, sang Freud, the faculty of seizing the propitious moments are necessary, as well as presence of mind, to allow a good excuse to be found rapidly and naturally in the event of surprise. Among sneak thieves, specialists may often be found, Who, by habit inclination or the recollection of the success attending their first theft invariably operate in the same manner thus one individual never stole except from the attics an occupation he found most lucrative in all his expeditions he employed the same method he preferred fine summer afternoons when people are generally out of doors he would in flats go quietly up the stairs carrying nothing but a bunch of false keys, and if stopped, would ask for someone named X. Otherwise, he went right up to the attic door, quickly and skillfully opened it, and putting it on the latch to make believe it was shut, would lean his stick against it in the inside, so that if anyone opened the door, it would fall and warn him of the danger. He then examined the articles which are often most imprudently kept in the attics, such as liner, winter clothes and summer, books, plate, etc., He then chose a bag, bags being usually placed in the attics in towns, filled it with the best he could find and came whistling downstairs as slowly as possible. This is the usual procedure of people who sneak into houses. They pretend to be commissionaires, street porters, cleaners of clothes, message boys or beggars. Sometimes the sneak is a well-dressed gentleman, a foreigner who speaks the language badly, a servant looking for a place a nurse a shop girl a midwife or a well-dressed lady in short he appears under every imaginable guise they open either the first door they come to or a door explored previously if they meet anyone they ask a question suitable to the character they represent and if they see no one and find something to steal they steal if the thief works hotels he generally obtains some situation of a temporary character in them so as to become acquainted with the habits of the house take impressions of the keys or become familiar with other difficulties he then turns up later on either as a servant with a letter in his hand or as the well-dressed visitor of someone staying in the hotel passes people he meets quickly or haughtily opens with his master key a locked up room in an empty corridor and takes everything he can lay his hands on if he comes in the morning while the traveler is still asleep he pretends to be a commissionaire clothes cleaner chiropodist hairdresser etc enters softly and never forgets to say good morning in a low voice so as to appear harmless if the sleeper wakes up in this way he reaches the bed-table takes the watch and purse generally lying there and goes off as he comes these two classes of thieves have often caused much misfortune in the sense that the thefts committed by them have frequently been imputed to domestics for the simple reason that they could be explained in no other way Thieves who work in shops hardly ever sneak into any but small shops which at certain times, such as midday, are not well watched, the proprietor being in the back shop getting his dinner. They open the door, if there happens to be one, as quietly as possible, pushing back the bell with a stick, lay hold of the till or in default something of value from the stock, and disappear as softly as they have come. Among this class are to be found some with such remarkable skill and audacity that the thefts they commit appear at first sight impossible we may mention some of the acts of a certain criminal to show that the investigating officer should never be misled by anything into saying that a thing is impossible the person in question was a jewish sailor who had thrown over his occupation and now roamed about the docks where he had lived high for a time and then fallen into the lowest depths of misery one day he undertook a journey on foot from Trieste to Hamburg, to see the world, as he said, and was arrested on the way on the charge of having killed a man by suddenly compressing the carotid arteries with his thumbs, thus bringing about unconsciousness and death. This individual, who was named M.W., had the most sinister face the author ever met within his career. The suspicions against him were not weak, but it was impossible to collect sufficient proof to convict him. During the inquiry, two of his fellow prisoners, who, though themselves grown gray in crime, began to find their companion too compromising, denounced M.W. as the author of a series of crimes which they asserted that he had committed in a number of seaports and always by the same method of sneaking into houses. M.W. related to his companions that he first of all tried to find out when a respectable family was going to pass the evening away from home at a ball reception concert etc on the given day he used to sneak into the house before the doors were shut and hide either in the house itself or in some chosen spot in the courtyard and there await the return of the family and their retirement to bed mw speculated on the fact that the people of the house owing to their fatigue would sleep soundly and would neglect to lock away the jewels they had worn during the evening which would be left lying about on the tables for the rest of the night he then started to open the doors of the bedrooms which are generally closed by turning the key on the inside and leaving it in the lock now as skeleton keys cannot be employed while there is a key in the lock the key must first be removed to do this he used a small pair of tweezers of fine and special shape and construction or tongs like small curling tongs with grooved steel arms which he introduced from outside into the keyhole and with which he attempted to fix a very fine steel wire round the end of the key this done he seized the head of the key with the pincers and turned it until the key bit came opposite the keyhole he had then only to push the key towards the inside and holding it by the wire let it fall gently to the ground if he failed to fix the steel wire he had to push the key out and run the risk of the noise disturbing the people inside. The door once opened, M.W. entered in his stocking soles and, lighted by a small lantern with a dark red glass, searched all the occupied rooms. He asserted that the red light prevented the sleepers from waking. He was thus able to steal everything of value, and he said he always got a rich haul. It almost makes one uncomfortable to think of this thief with his red light gathering up in haste values deposited by the people of the house then sleeping beside him and perhaps determined to use violence should one of the sleepers happen to wake up this story was at first taken for one of those old robber tales with which prisoners try to beguile the time and impose upon one another but the inquiry brought out that mw had been at least on one occasion convicted for a theft committed in the very way he had described to his fellow prisoners it was impossible to find out the number of thefts for which he had escaped punishment and it cannot but be thought that these latter must have been imputed to the servants and in many cases for no one could imagine so strange a manner of thieving it may be presumed that mw detached the steel wire from the key on leaving the flat and replaced the key in the keyhole so that there remained no other trace of the presence of the thief than the unturned key a detail which might very well pass unnoticed in the morning before the discovery of the theft. Thefts in Bazaars and Shops This subject has been treated to some extent in the section dealing with thieves' accomplices. Little remains to be said. All know how thieves steal from bazaars, and as regards shops, stealing from them is a much more difficult matter than formerly. The essential thing in such cases is to immediately search the house of the suspected person, as well as the houses of persons who have recently visited there. This often brings to light regular depots for stolen property, a result often of great value. No doubt it is difficult to find out to whom these goods belong, and when the thefts are from grain merchants, it is quite impossible. One day, when a big bazaar thief was captured, the authorities had the bright idea of holding an exhibition of the recovered property. It was held in the Sessions Court, which happened not to be in use, and a list was published in the papers many tradespeople visited the court and nearly all the stolen property was identified end of section seventeen